Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I am Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. On this week's agenda, why it's so hard to take a woke vacation, the dominatrix who requires the men who hire her to read black feminist theory, new legislation promises to end sex trafficking but actually endangers sex workers, and an artist on her efforts to build the patriarchy for all of her emotional labor and uncompensated hours of household and childcare labor. (laughs) Plus a bonus story about that time Amina converted a Trump supporter while she was at a bar in Jamaica. Hi, Ann Friedman. How's it going? Hey, hey, hey. I'm okay. I'm in like I'm in like a midweek slump. <laughs> I know people are listening to this on Friday, which is like not a slumpy day. But like, I truly think that like I have some like, you know, freelance fire in my loins on Mondays and like Fridays I've really structured for myself slash it's almost the weekend. I don't know. I used to kind of eye roll at office cartoons that are like Wednesdays, aren't they hard or like hump day? And like, <laughs> but I, I've really come to realize that like I relate to that. There is some truth. <laughs> um, wow. No, it's true. Every day is hard except for the weekend, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. Every day is hard. Yeah. And even the weekend, it's like, you know, Friday at 10 p.m. is when I start getting the Monday dreads. What? (laughs) Yeah. I told you about my friend's dad in Texas who always said, can't take the stink off a Sunday. It's true. Like, I don't even like Sunday. Saturday is the only good day in the week as far as I'm concerned. See, I feel a little different. I guess I used to feel that way when I've had jobs that have been really frustrating where I felt stuck or like where I have been underappreciated. I have had that feeling. But now I'm very, very lucky to have like a job, including this one with you, ahem, <laughs> a job that like is generally... It's not a job, Anne. It's a passion, okay? <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. A, a passion we insist it's, on being compensated for. Yeah. I know. It's a job. We just had a meeting before this, so it's definitely a job. <laughs> oh my God. I know. that. So that feeling you're describing, that like stink on a Sunday, I definitely have related to. But my freelance mode is more like I have really big ambitions for the week. I'm not someone who like necessarily stacks a to-do list, but I just, I I truly believe that every week is going to be the week where I'm like, yes, I really like did the thing that I super wanted to do. And I checked it off my list exactly how I wanted, got fulfilling writing done. And I saw my friends and I, you know, whatever. Like I really, I, I am like a very much a Monday optimist and I'm excited to wake up and work on Monday. And I think my midweek slump is like just reality, just like coming to terms with the fact that like not everything can be as I have perfect envisioned it yeah that's real it feels easy for me right now because the only thing I'm doing is this podcast (laughs) as the CEO of my own cancer um, (laughs) the only time I have to like check email or check in for work is about the podcast and the podcast is fun so it doesn't feel like work and also like let's be real I'm the delinquent one like every time we come to a meeting I'm like oh yeah I haven't done any of my work I (laughs) haven't done anything and you and Gina are the most like I've been busy getting healthy after like you know a major (laughs) surgery and like being CEO of my own illness but you know I like you know we know I but I also like I'm taking advantage of it a little bit so this is like me being coming clean and being honest about it and yeah 
before I got sick, I I worked so hard and I always thought that like work was my life or whatever. And now I'm like, oh, I'm definitely in a Tuesdays with Maury kind of place. (laughs) When I found out that I was sick, work was the last thing on my mind, even though like still got bills to pay. I mean, but like I am truly shocked at how nonchalant I'm being about work. It's like almost like having an out of body experience. I mean, I wish I hadn't worked so hard is like the number two deathbed regret. So it like... (laughs) Seriously, I have like like Tuesdays with Maury. One hundred percent Tuesdays with Morying. Like, yeah, it makes sense. Um, It's so real. And now I'm like, wow, I'm really glad I found this out at 32 and not at like 82. So, all I'm saying is, I just need to win the lottery because if I could not work for the rest of my life, one hundred percent, I would do it. Listen, you. We've already discussed how I would become a woman in a really luxurious, like gold silk caftan who's only organizing charitable events. Like that's what I would be. I would be like, <laughs> I would be like a kept philanthropist woman. <laughs> no, I only want to do like GoFundMe philanthropy. Go through the website once a day. Something catches my eye, and I like give them my credit card. I'm like, I'm not even trying to set up a foundation. But you know, I was just in Jamaica. Um, Speaking of relaxing hard and oh my God, I can't believe I had never been to Jamaica. I had such a good time. I have never been to Jamaica, although I did do a fifth grade country report on Jamaica. God knows what that included, but I was interviewed on the local news about it at some sort of fair. I know. And (laughs) we have to find this clip. We We definitely, it's going to be so offensive. Like I can't even tell you whatever, whatever I did for school on like the economy of Jamaica talking about bananas or something like totally My off point God. yeah so it's because you know whenever i want to relax i always head west and then i was like i can't handle going to california let's <laughs> what's what's happening east side <laughs> And it's happening like, on an island, yeah. And it was my really good friend Shawnee's B-Day. She's from Jamaica. And she was like, let's go to Jamaica. Five minutes into me being in Jamaica, I had turned into the ultimate tourist. Like, <laughs> I was like, somebody please braid my hair. Where can I get a Jamaica Me Crazy t-shirt? <laughs> like, it was like, this place is legit paradise. I cannot believe it took me so long. And had a blast. It was amazing. Oh, my God. I stayed at a resort. Have we talked about this? Like, how I've been, like, a resort snob my whole life. Because I'm like, ugh, like, who stays at a resort? Like, you got to go out, meet the locals, whatever. Lies. I mean, what part of all-inclusive is not attractive to you? (laughs) Listen, I don't know what. And then I was in this all-inclusive resort. Granted, we did leave. Because, you know, still got to meet the locals. I am never not... 100% inclusive resorting the rest of my life. Good to know for our future travel together. It's good. Honestly, the reason I had never been to Jamaica is because there is something like, I've always felt like very uneasy about doing like luxury tourism in the Caribbean. Because it's so, there's something that seems like very exploitative about it. And right. Like, like who is trust. benefiting from this tourist wealth? That totally. sort of thing. Yeah. Like trust. And so, you know, I'm just like, I'm going to go spend my money in a different kind of exploitative thing that doesn't hit me as hard. <laughs> also, you could like definitely tell that they do not get a lot of just like single black women like vacationing there a ton. And so got to have some like real talks with a lot of people who work there and It was really interesting, like, how they feel about it differently. And they're just like, this is just a job for us, you know? So, like, you don't need to be, like, performatively, like, black angry about it. Whoa, yeah. 
I had a blast. I still, you know, got to think about colonialism. <laughs> so it's like, when are we not? Taking, <laughs> right. Like, you know, like taking woke vacations is hard, you know, but also like realizing like I like spending my money in majority black countries. I feel like I'm doing a good thing. And so thinking about my vacations that way and like I just love meeting black people from other parts of the world where I'm like, whoa, we have so much in common. And then here's what's different is mm-hmm. awesome. So I highly recommend Jamaica. The weed is plentiful and delightful. <laughs> Everybody is chill. It's like every stereotype you have of Jamaica is true. Like the people are wonderful. It is very chill. The water is very blue and warm. I'm like into extreme sports now. I got to go parasailing, so you can't tell me nothing. <laughs> and it's awesome. Uh, you deserve it, boo-boo. <laughs> <laughs> one, one day, one day I have to go back into the real world. It'll be fine. I know I already told you this, but I want, the, there's like a photo of you parasailing where the expression on your face is like, it's not just joy, but it's like, shock at how much joy you're feeling it is like uh, (laughs) i think you mean that's called fear and no way it's definitely (laughs) it's definitely like some kind of shock joy and i'm like have already made it like the avatar for you every time you call me or text me like across platforms (laughs) oh my god jamaica me crazy oh my god Okay, what's going on today on Call Your Girlfriend? Tell me, tell me what is the best thing you've seen on the internet this week? Okay, so it's definitely old, but like, I don't care. I have cancer, so news comes to me late. <laughs> um, <laughs> how obnoxious am I being? I love it. I love it. Cancer diva and if you're annoyed, And if you're annoyed by me, you should feel a little bit bad. Uh, <laughs> I just pictured uh, when you said that I pictured the you on the parasail face. Like, ha! <laughs> like, ah! Um, okay, so I was watching my favorite morning TV show, uh, AM to DM, on BuzzFeed at 10 a.m. every day, or Monday through Friday. They were interviewing this amazing woman who's a dominatrix who requires the men who hire her to read Black feminist theory. Right. She is a Black woman, Correct. Yes, her name is Mistress Velvet, and so people hire her to be their dom, so that means the person who takes the dominant role in a dominant-submissive relationship um, or arrangement, and uh, she says that most of her clients are, like, white cisgender men, which um, I'm like, whoa, that's fascinating. And it's so interesting to hear her talk about her work because at first she was like, oh, I don't know if I have like kind of the temperament to do this. And then she like started finding the work personally rewarding. Also, like over time, like Mistress Velvet basically started realizing that she was doing a lot of theorizing about the power dynamic of like a black woman holding um, that kind of supremacy over a white cisgender guy. 
And uh, I'm just, like, my mind was blown. I was just like, whoa, this is amazing. And so she started introducing black feminist theory into her sessions with clients because that was the thing to do. Also, she's like smart and woke. And her clients like loved it. I love that. Like that is the Isn't best. That, that fascinating? is like that is the twist ending of this story. That like her white cis male clients were like, "Yeah, I'm into it. I do want to learn about all of this." Yeah, it was just it was so fascinating. You know, she's like having them read like Audre Lorde, Patricia Hill Collins, really doing the Lord's work <laughs> of like educating white men, but also having them respond to that kind of framework. That has to be like very, very, very like uh, rewarding. Yeah, and I I also found myself wondering, like, while I was listening to her about how the sexual dynamic that she has with her clients or, like, the the dynamic that she has with her clients perhaps makes them, like, more primed or, like, you know, more willing to read this than, like, you know, people out in the general world who are not, like, hey, black women, I'm wanting to take my cues from you. Like, you know, she's reaching a group of people who are definitely, like, you know, like, I'm, I'm here to, like, to do what you want me to do. And she's like, guess what I want you to do? I love it. I love it. Yeah, you know, and, and she talks, like, a lot of her work really is about, like, reminding people that that stereotype of the black woman as as a Jezebel is rooted in like so much bullshit right and it's definitely a historical phenomenon that like black women throughout history have had to deal with mm-hmm. and so she just basically exposes the roots exposes like why it's problematic and she talks about BDSM as healing for black women which is something that I had never considered before because she says that like BDSM is a space where you could work through a lot of the stuff that she experiences as a black woman and really makes that kind of space. So she like she asks all the questions about like what kind of benefits cuz this have for my life, like what does it mean when a black woman is dominant over a white man? It's so fascinating. So some of the reading that she recommends is Sister Outsider by Audre Lorde, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, The Black Body in Ecstasy by Jennifer Nash, The Color of Kink by Ariane Cruz, and uh, selections from the anthology This Bridge Called My Back. It does not get, like, more black feminist than that. <laughs> like, these are, these are all of the hits. Yeah, and I also wanted to point to Nicole Perkins, who interviewed Mistress Velvet for, I believe she did the AM to DM interview, right? Yes. Yes, um, she did. Nicole she- has written about her own um, experience with BDSM. Years ago, like, I remember reading her essay, like, like her essay about race and BDSM is one of the first times that, like, I really had my mind blown on this topic. All of this to say that, like, I really appreciate Mistress Velvet because I feel that, like, for the first time in a long time, I've learned something and I was really moved by hearing somebody talk about their own experience with sex work and with, like, Black feminist theory and just working through your own pain in this kind of relationship. And it's just really awesome. It also is sort of newsy on point because I have been reading a lot. I don't know if you've been following SESTA as it moves through Congress. Are you familiar with mm-hmm. this bill? Yeah. SESTA is the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act of 2017. It has passed the House and is moving toward a Senate vote. And It's noteworthy because it has a lot of celebrity support. There's like a PSA that features Seth Meyers and Amy Schumer and other celebrities. But basically, the bill would make websites criminally liable for hosting content linked to trafficking sex. It's kind of framed as this way for states to protect 
victims of sex trafficking. And reading this essay by Alana Massey in Allure, who is a former sex worker, she breaks it down this way. The problem is that these bills target websites that are widely and and inaccurately believed to be hubs of trafficking, when it is precisely those websites that enable people in the sex trades to do their work safely and independently, and at, at the same time as they make it easier for authorities to find and investigate possible trafficking cases. So basically, she's saying that, like, by shutting down the places where workers advertise their services and also where people are legitimately doing bad stuff like trafficking, the authorities are making it harder both on sex workers and also harder on the, on themselves in terms of finding people who are actually perpetrating this bad behavior. So it's kind of like rather than ending sex trafficking or fighting online sex trafficking, that, and which is the way the legislation is framed and which is the way the celebrity supporters are framing it, it is in fact pushing it further underground or pushing it away from places where sex workers can have some more control. So I don't know. I mean, I it's one of those cases where, and I think about this a lot, we've talked about it with Me Too, where it's like, who are you listening to when it comes to responses to big systemic problems? Yep. And I, I have no idea who the people who wrote this legislation are talking to, but from what I have read, a lot of people who are actually engaged in sex work are saying, this is not making us safer. This is not making us more connected to resources. This is making it easier to exploit us and therefore having the opposite of the intended effect. Yeah, you know, and this is actually also an online speech issue, right? In the sense that you're silencing a lot of legitimate online speech. And it's interesting to me, like, whose censorship, like, we care about the most. But here are a lot of people, like, saying that you are shutting down the online spaces that they are in and making them more vulnerable. There is something about preserving the internet as a place where everyone can, like, gather, learn, share ideas, even if they're super controversial. I would say that, like, sex work falls under that controversial one, but it's... Congress, like, finds it really easy to just, like, censor the speech of sex workers because they're not as important, I don't know, as, like, gun owners or something. And and I think that, like, if you're somebody who cares about, like, an open and good internet, this is an issue that you should think about a lot, whether you agree or like sex work or not, because it has repercussions in so many other areas of media. Right. Yeah, and it definitely deals with, like, the this legislation would affect the Communications Decency Act. So it's, like, 100% squarely in that free speech conversation. Alana Massey makes this point so well that the bill covers the exact places where sex workers are sharing information about dangerous clients, are finding emergency housing, are getting recommendations for service providers who are friendly to sex workers, and, you know, in building community. These are places where... They're not just advertising to potential clients, they are building community with each other. And I think like that idea too of shutting down peer-to-peer resource sharing, like like historically, it's not like the government does a great job of being like, here are the resources and, and you actually need, <laughs> or like here is like yeah. here's a way to stay safe, like for for people in these professions. Right. And I mean, and this is why you need to keep your third eye wide open, right? Because it's not like Congress is saying that like those people can't gather and like talk and share this information. What they're saying is that they're going to scare the online platforms into censoring the users themselves. So all online platforms are enabled by a law that's called Section 230. Section 230 is what protects online platform from liability from some types of speech, right? So 
it's basically why Twitter can get away with like Nazis on their platform all the time. But to be fair, without Section 230, social media would not exist at all because it would mean that like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they're all liable for everything that we say, which it's not a way to build a for-profit business, right? But at the same time, there are a ton of nonprofits and community-based online groups that serve as these like kind of crucial outlets for knowledge sharing. And so whoever wrote this bill like knows exactly what they're doing because it's really easy to go to like all of, you know, like to go to these big companies or even to the nonprofits and like cut them at the legs instead of interacting with the users or all which is just another way of saying, like, we don't give a shit about sex workers. And that's who you should be listening to if you're saying that that's who you're trying to protect. Right. The nation's largest network of anti-trafficking organizations, which is called the Freedom Network, is like, don't do this. This is a bad bill. Like, you know, and like, that's the thing that always blows my mind, too. Like, like, are you doing a Google celebrities who are part of this PSA? Like, has someone told you that not just like individual sex workers, but the, the nation's largest like network of anti-trafficking organizations is against this. So to your point about this is the same thing that allows Twitter to be chill with tweets by Nazis, like the difference is, you know, the federal government is not stepping in to say, Twitter, you can't allow Nazi tweets. That's something that like users would like Twitter to do as a company yeah. policy, which is which is very different than the government being like, we're going exactly. to control what you can and cannot say. Yeah, Right. And it's also like very important to think about like when we talk about free speech, it's like who gets to enjoy the full benefits of free speech and what we see over and over again is that when marginalized communities clamor for their free speech rights everybody says sorry that's not going to work for us yeah totally so it's a great time to tell your senators that you are not cool with sesta um and yeah and also like if you're friends with amy schumer maybe point this out to her i don't know i'm like what are you doing what are you doing Right. Um, and you can go to stopsesta.org, stop, S-E-S-T-A.org to like sign a petition. The other thing is that I guarantee you that your congressperson also was sold to this as like an anti-trafficking, like good thing to do and uh, has not like really looked at the fine print of what this does and what it means. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly the kind of thing that seems like an unobjectionable vote. Like who is for child sex trafficking? Like literally no one. Right. So it's like it's such a like a no brainer. Like I'm easily going to vote for this if you don't like think harder about what it's actually doing. In So I ran across an art project on the internet from this woman named Patty Machis, who has been doing something that I know we are both squarely interested in, which is she is invoicing the patriarchy for all of her unpaid hours of work in childcare, household labor, emotional labor, 
pretty much all the stuff that is <laughs> traditionally defined as gendered labor and is not compensated by capitalism. She's been like faxing these kind of hand-painted invoices to the people who represent her in Congress, tallying the hours that she spent on all of this without paid compensation. This is amazing. I can't wait to listen to this. So yeah, so I'll, um, I will let her talk about it. And also I'm going to, I confess, I'm going to tell you this now up front, but like I was a little bit worried because she is a white woman in the East Bay. And I was like, uh-oh, is this going to be a conversation about childcare burden and the wage gap that does not take into account like things like race, which are like a huge defining factor in who is compensated and how. But to my great delight and surprise, Patty is thinking about all of that. So here's our conversation. <laughs> Patty, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. So happy to be talking to you. I had to talk to you when I heard about this project you're doing called Invoice the Patriarchy. I wonder if you can tell me and tell our listeners what that's all about. Yeah, so uh, there are two basic components to the uh, Invoice the Patriarchy project. Uh, one of them is the actual art making part of it. So what I do is I keep track of the hours that I spend on child care and I make these time card paintings based on my baby's activities. Uh, so I have a 15 month old son at home and I've been doing this for about a year. Uh, and the second component is how I share that information with the world. And that's where we get into the invoicing part. And basically, the idea came from a practice that I had when I was a freelancer, like graphic design and websites and stuff, where if I did free work for somebody, I would still send them an invoice, just even if it was like family, just to be like, hey, FYI, my time has value. And like, I made you this website, but it would have cost you a $1,000 which is like maybe a little passive aggressive now that I'm saying it out loud, but it's like a way to sort of show my value. So what I wanted to do with this project was show my work, show my value to the patriarchy. So I started to tally up these hours and create painted invoices and, and painted cover sheets. And I would actually fax them to different government officials. Since the patriarchy is um, whack and outdated, I wanted to use <laughs> um, a horrible way to communicate. So the paintings are made with red ink on big paper. And what I actually send to them is just photos of it. So they get a fax that is, you know, maybe 10 pages long that includes the amount of hours that I spent on childcare. I charge Oakland minimum wage, so that's 13 around $13 an hour, how many hours I spent during that pay period, and I include things, sort of jokey things in the line item that you would include in an invoice, like the opportunity cost, other invisible quote-unquote women's work that I've done, like housework, <laughs> um, emotional labor, and I'm just sort of trying to paint a picture of like, hey, I know everybody thinks that I don't exist anymore in the world because I'm a stay-at-home mom now, but actually I'm contributing to society in this really positive way. So I'm sort of using, like, I'm using the tools of our reality to try to communicate with our reality, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. One of the line items that really gave me pause when looking at these is the opportunity cost of staying home, which you quantify as infinity. 
<laughs> yeah. Maybe you can yeah. talk about that one a little too. I think about that like every hour and especially like becoming a mom, there's so many moments of sitting in this weird position, watching this child sleep for two hours. I'm trapped. I can't move. Like you can't help but think about all the other things that you would rather be doing, even if I love my son so much. At some point, you're like, wow, I could be out networking or trying to pursue my career in this way. I could be researching something. I could be reading a book. There's so many things that I didn't expect about motherhood that kind of make you really trapped in the some ways beautiful presence of childcare that you're just, you know, on the ground on all fours hanging out with a baby, which is beautiful. But there are so many other things that I'm not able to do. And I'm really lucky in that I have a super supportive partner, but there is a part of me that I wanted to sort of show him that, okay, you've been at work all day. Well, so have I. Neither of those are more valuable than the other, that they're equal parts important. And that, in fact, me doing it enables him to do his work. Um, 60% of Americans think that a child is better off if there's a parent at home. Mm -hmm. And 65% of those respondents were men. So and 55 were women. So it's like more men think that children are better off at home. But such a small percent, I think 10.5 million stay at home parents are women and 1.5 are men. That's one of those things that makes it really clear to me that like, wow, the patriarchy really is real. Like There (laughs) is this pressure to stay home and do this and do this work and it's invisible and pervasive. This project satisfies a lot of those feelings for me of being able to articulate, first of all, hey, I exist, I'm not invisible. It just felt like this was a time for me to no longer just be an artist working in her studio, but that I really had to make my voice heard and and especially for other women out there who are in a much less privileged place than I am, which maybe don't have a choice to stay at home, uh, which a lot of women don't, who are the sole breadwinners, who are living, I think 34% of stay-at-home parents are living in poverty. I think it's a way for me to kind of shine a light on this as something that people just assume is the way life is and the way things are, and to just be like, no, this is a choice that every family has to make, and a lot of times it's economically driven. So let's give it an actual economic value because it does contribute to our society so much, all the invisible work that that child care workers do, which I now appreciate that I'm doing it. (laughs) Yeah, I was actually going to say something to that effect, which is that when we don't value this type of labor, when it's performed by maybe the biological or like the parents of Young, particularly young children, then it's also difficult to appropriately value it when you are paying someone in a caregiving role, right? Like, I think it's no coincidence that this country, which has such deplorable access to childcare, is also uniquely terrible at paying those professionals, right? Like, the idea that your labor as a parent is undervalued is directly connected to poor payment and conditions for childcare workers. Yeah. And and it's really interesting, too, because what I chose to do was to pay myself the Oakland minimum wage, which, like I said, is $13, um, which is nationally like way ahead of seven or eight dollars, which is a lot of what um, child care workers are making. You know, it's rare that you find people who are really 
into paying well for childcare. And I've even had to like sort of check myself where I'm like doing this project. And the only way that I can, by the way, the irony of this is the only way that I can do an art project about childcare and talk to you about childcare without a baby shoving his hand in my mouth (laughs) is because I'm paying somebody right now to (laughs) perform childcare, right? right? I want to talk about hard numbers in terms of were you surprised by by the number of hours, like obviously like anyone who has spent a full day caring for a young child understands how exhausting like that is, how that really feels like, oh my God, that was a full day at the end of the day. But I'm curious about mm-hmm. in terms of the logged hours with this project, how many you've been logging, you know, with each invoice. And then also if you've been surprised at how much dollar amount wise you're owed. Yeah. So hard numbers wise, I didn't count time asleep or Sundays, which is some weird like leftover Catholic thing. I don't even know why I did that. (laughs) But I was like, oh, I'm not going to count Sundays. (laughs) I don't know. Since around the time I started, which was a little bit after the Women's March till the end of 2017, I calculated around 5,600 hours of time providing childcare, which if I was paid the Oakland minimum wage currently would be around $75,000. So I was surprised because most childcare workers don't make that much money, but probably also aren't working. You know, there's like an eight hour a day limit, whereas I was working more like 16 hour days or 18 hour days, you know, depending on how much my child was or was not sleeping. In 2018, I made a New Year's resolution to like lean in to motherhood (laughs) and to uh, really go for it because so many people when I was posting it were actually like, oh, you should charge more. You're undercutting yourself, you know, and (laughs) isn't that the whole point of this project is to show how you have value. Shouldn't you be paid more for this wonderful work that you're doing for this growing child that's deep (laughs) um yeah right so what I've started and and it's true it's like I felt I feel every time I post one of these invoices I feel terror and shame and like everybody is going to be like who is this like privileged mom who wants to be paid for being a parent and I hate her and I've just realized that a lot of that is me internalizing the messages of the patriarchy of just being like shut up do your job, accept your role, don't complain about it, be grateful that you get to watch your child or whatever. So there is, it's not like I'm not conflicted about a lot of the things in this project. I'm just pushing through them every time I send one of these invoices out. And what I've decided to do in 2018, my sort of resolution was to charge for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and to not make these exceptions of when I'm sleeping or not sleeping, because the truth is, if I had a night nurse, which I guess is a thing that people do, which I'm sure um, Ivanka had one. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Which is like my one beef with Lean In is I actually think there is a chapter. Well, if you're going to do this and you want to be a C plus executive, you should get a night nurse. And it's like, really, Cheryl, like that's <laughs> your advice to me is I pay someone 150 to $200 a night to sleep in my one bedroom house with me. I don't understand, but whatever. <laughs> you know, even if I go out all night and my baby is just sleeping, like somebody would have to be paid to watch him too. So childcare is never ending in that he can wake up in the middle of the night and be coughing and I'm going to run to his bedside and make sure that he's okay and I might not go back to sleep that night. So Now, I think I was able to project just moving forward being like, okay, I already know that assuming for the next year, 
I'm going to be doing 24 hours of childcare, seven days a week. That is going to be upwards of, I think, $115,000. So you said that you've been sending these to the U.S. Senate and to your representatives. Yeah. Um, Sometimes I really struggle with how has this not become something that we at least like minimally subsidize like our government. I mean, we all know the statistics about other developed nations doing the reasonable thing and subsidizing care. I mean, how has this changed your perspective on the kind of legislative picture for compensating caregivers fairly and compensating child care period? Yeah, so I've I've dug in and I've done a lot of research. Um, this project has been incredibly empowering in sort of understanding the machinations of our democracy and our government a little bit better. And part of that is the time that we're in. On election night, I, I literally like went to sleep because I was eight months pregnant and went to sleep at like 7 p.m. So I didn't know what was going on. I went to sleep imagining my eight-year-old son asking me, you know, mama, what's it like having a man president? And me being like, oh, son, you know, let me tell you about like what that was like. And, and I just didn't expect the outcome that we had. And then this year, whether it was women's rights or standing rock. It's like, I definitely felt like I was calling my senators. I knew their, I knew their names. I knew I had all of these numbers programmed into my phone. So I already felt like this year there was a bit of activism that had awakened in me that wasn't quite present before. I had somebody who was looking at the work and they said, on one hand, this feels like really radical feminist stuff, but on the other, it's just like such common sense. What I'm asking for with things like universal child care or subsidized parental leave, things like that. Like you're saying, every other advanced economy does this. Like, why, why is this a thing? Why are we having to make a bunch of noise about it? But what's amazing is even just sharing it in my limited social sphere of just on my Facebook and Instagram, people have come up to me, you know, and a lot of times it's dudes and they're like, wow, I just like didn't realize how much work it was and that like you don't get to do other stuff while you do this and that yeah like it's not fair like you're so smart you should be acknowledged for this you know and it's like yeah thanks for noticing that but also like go thank your mom or like whatever other invisible women there are in your life. Um, right. And who are you calling in the Senate about this? Right. <laughs> like Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The other thing is sort of like trying to figure out like, well, unpacking that for myself, it's like, who is the patriarchy? The first step for that for me was actually sending a letter to myself and being like, these, there are ways that I still um, can work on, you know, be breaking down some of these, pressures that I'm under and really understanding what motivates my actions and you know because you do it's weird like when you you have a kid you get a lot of like positive reinforcement about being a stay-at-home mom but then also because we're in this careerist place like everyone's like oh that's so sad like you're not able to do other things it's just really complicated so I think there is this feeling of anger and blame that I want to place. So when I when I send it out to the government, it's actually because I think that they are in a position like I, you know, to do something about it. And people like Elizabeth Warren, who at the end of last year, you know, tried to put in some universal child care 
into a bill, that stuff is amazing. And I think that any way that we can support by calling senators, and even though I'm sending a bit of an art project, I include a, a normal cover letter that just says, hey, this is an example of what one stay-at-home mom's experience is. This is why you should legitimately support this as a constituent so that there is some accountability that our government has to provide some services for families. Absolutely. So I feel like the answer is like, what if we all did this? I mean, I'm thinking about the possibilities of, first of all, just having access to that data of how caregivers and particularly full-time caregivers are spending their time. But then also, you know, looking at the way you've got an emotional labor <laughs> line item. What about all of the work that all of us are doing uncompensated for the patriarchy? And like picturing a world in which the U.S. Senate is just receiving thousands and thousands of invoices every other week is very heartening to me. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's and and I've and I've sort of gone outside of that too. Like, it's systemic, right? So it's like sending it to all different parts of society. So it's not just government, it's culture. I did one letter that I sent, you know, to the media. Why do I have to be a mom? I can't, you know, I have to be like hot and skinny and have perfect skin, but don't take your boob out ever in public because that's gross. And it's like all these weird double standards around that. And then another one to healthcare. It was the day after Erica Garner had passed just about like the epidemic of women of color being like in legitimate actual danger in our healthcare system. And I had a C-section and I cannot overstate just how terrifying it is to hand yourself over to a hospital with complete trust of you and your baby. And to just think that so many women are not having that same access that I did is completely terrifying. You know, that means I had to sit down and write a letter to my son, to my husband, to my father, you know, like to people in my family. And it definitely made for some awkward Thanksgiving conversations because I'm really trying to call out all aspects of how this is touching our lives. And um, sometimes it can feel like a little endless. <laughs> Um, well, we see you and we appreciate you. And I wish I could. I wish I had the money in my pocket to foot this bill. But, you know, it, again, it's not billed to me. So I'm, like, I'm, I'm with you. If listeners want to participate or check out your invoices, we'll link to your website. But is there an easy Instagram follow or maybe you could repeat the hashtag? Yeah, so it's just hashtag bill the patriarchy. And I definitely encourage you, whether it's just to write it down and start keeping track of it um, and just sharing it. I, it's been a really empowering process for me. So I am at artpatty.com. Actually, all of the time cards are available as paintings for sale. So you sort of would subsidize two weeks of my motherhood. <laughs> and I am art patty on Instagram. Patty, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Patty, I love it. <laughs> I know. And so since our interview, she sent me an email. She has set up a website, billthepatriarchy.com, where you Amazing. can fill out a quiz to figure out all of the unpaid hours that you have spent contributing toward the world without financial compensation and generate your own invoices. So yeah, help help calculate the annual salary you'd be getting if you if all of your labor were compensated. This is amazing. I can't wait to take the quiz. Um, did I tell you about the one emotional labor that I did in Jamaica? 
Oh my God, tell me. <laughs> I um I spoke to a Trump voter. So oh <laughs> on vacation? <laughs> on vacation. On vacation. Here's how it all transpired. Um I there was this couple staying at the resort where we had had like um like funny moments in passing with the mom, with the mom, with the wife mm-hmm. a couple of times because there was like a rainstorm or whatever. You know, you just become like resort friendly with someone. <laughs> and uh <laughs> the next day at happy hour Shawnee and I happened to sit next to them again and for resort reasons got like resort drunk with them and uh, it was like a great time they were telling us about their life back home they're from Long Island and you know they kind of like presented themselves as these like cool hip people they told us how they met and like their meet cute was amazing like all this stuff and then we started discussing their daughter they told us basically that their daughter is dating a trans person whose pronouns are they and how hard that's been kind of adjusting to. And they were wondering if it was like a, a generational thing. And so Shawnee and I were explaining to them that actually it is generational, but the gap is like definitely smaller than they think, because mm-hmm. I think that even for people our age, we are just now wrapping our mind around the language and the vocabulary and all that stuff, right? Like the kids are amazing. The kids have it figured out. And we need to trust the kids. And, you know, and how and old is this couple, by the way, like 50s or something? They're like in 60s? their 50s. Okay. They're in their 50s, mid 50s, definitely. Okay. And, you know, and then they started talking about how their daughter, she was really uncomfortable about bringing her partner home for a holiday. And they don't understand why, because they are super cool with it. And, and they just wish that like she had opened up more to them or whatever. The advice that like we were giving them was give her some time. Being in your 20s is all about figuring it out and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, it was like asking more questions, right? Because I am, my third eye is wide open. And then it turns out they were like, yeah, you know, like some of our family has like voted for Trump. And, you know, like who doesn't have some family who's voted for Trump, right? I mean, these people are obviously white, right? Yeah. Of course, <laughs> yeah. of course, of okay. course. <laughs> well, you know, like some people voted for Trump. But they like framed it as it was like other members of the family, right? And I was Mm -hmm. like, well, you know, like that can also be it. And then we got into this conversation where I was trying to explain to them that like for younger people and for people from marginalized communities, politics feels very personal. I was like, I'm sure that your, you know, like your wife feels that way at this point. I was talking to the husband. I was like, I'm sure that your wife feels this way because he had like said how he was pro-choice, but he's pro-guns. And I was like, yeah, like whatever. That does not seem... Nuts. And then conversation shifts from that. They're really outdoorsy. And so I was telling them about my favorite parks and how I love the National Park Service. It's amazing. And how I'm really worried about the Park Service because of this administration. He 100% agrees. He's like, me too. I can't believe I voted for that guy. I wouldn't do it again. Ooh, and I was like, oh my what? God. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, excuse me? I have had three daiquiris with you. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. <laughs> you are what? And then he saw the look on my face and he like wanted to get a little squirrely about it. And I was like, no, I was like, let's talk about it. Like, what didn't you like about Hillary Clinton? And he told me that she was a crook, you know, like all the talking points. And I was like, well, like this president is a crook also. And we started going through all of the checklists. I was like, he, his kids, whatever. He's like, yeah, but somehow I could stomach that more. He's like, you're absolutely right. But I I appreciated the honesty. (laughs) And then earlier in our conversation, he had called himself a libertarian. And I was like, here are all the ways that he's not a libertarian. Like, why can you handle that? And then at some point, like, it starts dawning on him. He's like, you're right. The standard is harder for her. And then he says, 
And and this is where I almost fell off my stool. He's like, it was harder for Obama too because minorities have to work harder. <gasps> and I was like, minorities have to work harder to get your vote? This is bananas. <laughs> and and I'm basically approaching him like, listen, it was the first time I'm really feeling like, who's that New York Times reporter who's always talking to people in taxis, you know, and that's his whole Thomas show. Friedman. Thomas Friedman. Yeah, no yeah, relation to yours truly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was feeling like Thomas Friedman being like, oh my God, like <laughs> extrapolating all of this Trump data from this person. You were like Tommy and, Frito's mode you know, on vacation. <laughs> but I, was, I was really like, listen, I like you and your wife. I generally only like good people. It is blowing my mind that you're not like the monsters that I thought you would be. But also, but mostly I was like, but mostly you sound like a very reasonable and smart person. And this is not a thing that a smart person would say. Did you say I, that? I don't even want. Yeah, I said that to him. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to want to get into your biases or whatever, like, because I know what I think. But mostly I just I'm like, wow, here is an incredibly smart person. And he is. He's like a he's like a genius who is like a smart person who like did this very dumb thing with their vote. And then I brought it back to his daughter. Mm-hmm. And I was like, don't you think that maybe this explains why your daughter is reluctant <laughs> for all these things? And I was like, I'm sorry, can I ask you a very personal question? And he was like, yeah. Even the bartenders were like holding their breath at this oh point. Oh, my God. And I was like how, like, how do you feel about voting for somebody who doesn't believe in the full humanity of your child? Mm-hmm. And this is where he blew my mind, where he said, you know, it hadn't occurred to me because it doesn't affect me personally. And I was like, yeah, wow. but it affects your child. And he just like hadn't thought about it. And I was like, well, a famous proverb says that the political is personal. <laughs> and ancient feminist proverb. <laughs> an ancient feminist proverb. <laughs> and it just like really blew my mind. And then we went into this conversation of like, I told him, I was like, yeah, because he was complaining about how the economy was bad and all these things. And I was like, well, I was like, sir, like I'm a black woman. Those things have always been bad. And mm-hmm. I just like learn how to deal with it. Do you think that maybe it's harder for you because this is the first time in your life that you're confronted with the fact that like life is not great? <laughs> and he said yes. And we had like a legit conversation. Wow. Like he regretted his vote. He wouldn't do it again. His wife was like trying not to engage at all because she was like, oh, God, here we go. You know, like mm-hmm. and I was like, yep, classic white lady behavior. They were both great, though. I was like, I really enjoyed them. I really enjoyed talking to them. And the lesson that I learned was like, you can't take people's like description of who they are for what it really is. You know, like you have to go a little deeper because they really thought of themselves as these like cool, rad, liberal hippies. <laughs> like, where, no. where were they from out of curiosity? Long Island, which is not shocking. <laughs> I mean, because sometimes it is relative. Like sometimes our reactionary conservative is another neighborhood's like super liberal hippie. You know, I mean, like it's all based on what your context is. I know, but you know, like here's this guy married to this like loud, brash woman who would call herself a feminist. He's like very pro-choice. You know, all these things. And I was like, yeah, but that's not the sum total of who you are. And also like what you say your politics are has to reflect in how you vote. But also it was really fascinating for me, but I like definitely really enjoyed them. And I'm just like, white ladies, talk to your dads because otherwise I got to interrupt my vacation to talk to your dads. This is wild. This is wild. But also there's something about like not knowing about what the dynamic is with his daughter and like exactly where like 
what's going on in her life and what's going on with their relationship. Like sometimes this is the kind of thing that you like do need to hear from a stranger or someone who you don't. I mean, it's yeah. like an interesting, like obviously we should all be trying with relatives and strangers, like definitely. But sometimes like three daiquiris in, in Jamaica, like talking to a stranger who seems fun, smart and interesting as you invariably do is a little different than trying to like, make a connection with someone in your family who you have like a script about like and they have a script I 100% about agree with that and some of the grievances that he had too I was like no like I hear you and here are ways that like the DNC is really bad at messaging to people like you like I think that that's like a very fair grievance to have and yeah like the world is changing like really fast. If I was at the top two, I would probably be very concerned. We had a whole, like we had a delightful time. There was no yelling or screaming. The night ended great. I felt like we both left, like we had heard the other person. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, in this life, all we can give each other is information. So (laughs) I'm okay. (laughs) Life quest. I mean, I am grateful and proud of you for spending your vacation to do that i mean also was shawnee sitting there the whole time because i oh, shawnee like- was sitting there and shawnee was like i she's like i i represent the liberal media elite <laughs> 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 but she was also just like watching the whole thing and her and the wife were like having their side conversation it was very it was very cute the next day the bartenders gave me free rounds of drinks because yeah, they, they did. were like you, they were like <laughs> thank you for talking to that man and i was like i know boom oh it was great Once again, so grateful to have you out and about in the world. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody talk to a Trump voter this week without yelling. Maybe it'll help. It certainly helps if you don't know that they're Trump voters when you start hanging out with them. For sure. Like the sneak attack where they're like, I'm super liberal. Oh, wait. And guess what? I was in shock, like full body <laughs> shock. I was like, I was about to ask these people if they want to go sailing with me. And now you're telling me <laughs> they are my enemy. What? Wow. 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 <sighs> It's all good. It's all good. Hey, before we go, we should do a reminder. Um, give blood. If you have not signed up, you can find everything at callyourgirlfriend.com slash blood drive. You can also, in many cities where the appointments are full, walk in on the day of. Like in San Francisco, there were 10 people through the course of the day who had appointments and turned up, but for various reasons couldn't end up donating. And so if you're kind of on the fence and you haven't gotten a booked in appointment, try turning up and you might get lucky on the day of. Or you can schedule um, an appointment on your own anywhere in the world and fill out the form on our site to tell us about it and we'll count you toward the effort. We are getting so excited. The LA drive is coming up like in another week. And then after that, it's like, oh my God, almost like one every other day because they're coming in rapid succession. Anyway, do it. Give blood. Thank you to everyone who has been hashtag bleeding for Amina. I cry every time you tweet, email, or write me because I cannot, I just cannot believe this is happening. Thank you for giving a life-saving gift. It's such an, like, I'm so honored. And I just, like, I can't believe where everybody lives. Like, all the Australian people that I've written in and the Irish ladies and UK represent forever. I just... I am really, I'm in awe of our little community and I love that we can all make a difference this way. So thank you. 100%.
if you meet a Trump voting stranger at a bar six daiquiris deep, maybe bring them to the blood drive and we can all talk to them. Please don't drink before you donate blood. Drink yeah. water. Right. Okay. At the juice bar. LOL. Right. Um, anyway. Throwing throwing back those uh, grass shots. Wheatgrass shots. Oh, yeah. All, all, of, all of those Trump voters throwing back wheatgrass shots. Kale smoothies. You can find us many places on the internet on our website, callyourgirlfriend.com. You can download it anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or on Apple Podcasts. We'd love it if you left us a review. You can email us at callyrgf at gmail.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at callyrgf. You can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, The Bleed, on the Call Your Girlfriend website. Uh, You can even leave us a short and sweet voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGS. Our theme song is by Robin. All original music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. And this podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. See you on the internet, boo-boo. See you on the internet. Bye.